study your word. I pray that you'll encourage and strengthen and minister to each lady who's here. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a teacher in a high school, Christian high school, uh, the Bible teacher, who read to his high school religious class, uh, Bible class, he read the scripture, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Okay, said the teacher, from this scripture, what do we learn that's important in marriage? And I'm sure it was a boy who raised his hand and said, cleavage. So, (laughs) yeah, we know that. (laughs) Well, I know you ladies are much more intuitive. (laughs) <laughs> and picking up what scripture is putting down. Anyways, I'm excited to begin this study of the book of James. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, can recite lots of verses from this particular book because you know in past uh, trials in your life, this is a book of uh, encouragement and strengthening. The main theme of the book declares that the real, those with real faith will have genuine works to evidence their faith. So as we begin our study, I want to say from the get-go, every time I teach, that I am greatly helped by so many theologians that I have read, and I am simply sharing what I've learned from them with you. Well, we know from verse 1 that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James identifies himself as a servant or a slave of God. He's writing to the Jewish people who lived outside of the land of Israel. As you know, persecution had arisen and it was very difficult, and Jewish people who had embraced Jesus as a Messiah were scattered abroad. So James writes to them about persevering through trials and having an attitude of joy. So that brings us to enduring trials and temptations. With a joyful attitude, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We see here the command to look uh, upon trials in our life with joy. Notice he didn't say if you encounter a trial, but rather when. We don't usually have great joy in suffering, more often than not that we tend to lose our joy in facing difficult tests. But James is not saying, have joy because you're in agony, have joy because your loved one passed away and your heart is broken. Rather, James is teaching us that we still have a reason to have joy even in the midst of trials because of how God is using suffering in our lives to produce in us what would never be able to be done on our own. Happiness depends on circumstances making us feel happy. But joy is focused on God and his presence with us through the pain. The suffering that God permits and actually ordains to be in our life is to grow us and complete the work that God began in our lives the moment we trusted him for our Savior. So the hard things that you endure become the tools for good that God is using in you and for you. So God is actually, you know what he's doing? He's delivering us from ourselves and our self-absorption as he transforms our character in the midst of suffering. So let's face it, suffering destroys our self-reliance so that we should become more dependent on the Lord. You know, we can go about our day busy, busy, and go about our life when everything's going fine. And then when it's not, oh, I need him. And that ought to be how it is all the time. Suffering reveals also the sin we need to deal with. It reminds us how desperately we need the Lord and his grace in our lives. And it often exposes the idols of our hearts, the things we think we can't live without. 
we see clearly that we will inevitably face a variety, he says, of diverse kinds of trials. Uh, some are more severe, but there's all different kinds. I'm sure if we poll this room, that there'd be a vast variety of trials, whether it's a health trial, a financial, a fear, a persecution, uh, criticism, you know, flooded homes, fender benders, insurance companies not paying the bill. You, you know, it goes on and on all the way to the very extreme of losing a loved one. So our attitude and response in these trials is what reveals our true spiritual condition. Suffering, as I love uh, Paul David Tripp and his message on suffering, you can pull up on YouTube, and he keeps bringing home the point, suffering is the workroom for grace. And often trials come in the forms of tests designed by God to grow our faith and to grow our, us in obedience. So in reality, trials and tests are not our enemies, but rather the means that God has brought about to help us to grow. Understanding tests and trials, verse 3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So here is where we need to have a right thinking in our mind when our trials come to us. As believers, we know how beneficial tests can be. In James 2, uh, verse 2, he talked about trials, but here, verse 3, he speaks about testing. Tests prove the genuineness of a person's faith. Tests from God are nothing like a teacher that I'm sure all of you have had a teacher in the past whose goal is to give you a test that everyone fails. But God is not like that. God's tests are designed by him for our good. For the furnace of testing builds godly character into our lives. Remember, there is no test or temptation, Paul wrote the Corinthians, that's overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. You only have to read Hebrews 11 to see all the testimonies of the men and women who walked by faith and were strengthened in their walk as they suffered. I suspect we would all like to just naturally have, be given by God, endurance <clears throat> and steadfastness as a part of our character and our walk with the Lord. But you know what? There's no shortcut to get endurance. You know, you have to endure something difficult in order to build endurance. We must see life from God's perspective. We may never understand what he's doing or what his purpose may be uh, in a particular test or trial, but he is going to accomplish things through what he's brought into our lives. And we can be absolutely confident that he is always good and he is always wise and he knows what he's doing. So what looks hopeless to us never looks that way to God. Endurance involves trusting him for a long duration of time. And I'm sure many of you can testify to that, whether it's been something you have been burdened for and praying and struggling with for a six months, a year, or 50 years. The truth is that we don't really know what our faith is like until we see it, see our reaction when we are under the pressure and strain of trials and tests. Endurance faces the storms of life. It grows our faith so that we have a greater stability in our lives. I love Spurgeon's quote, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So how are you passing the tests that God has ordained to be in your life? There is a harvest, harvest that's produced in testing, and the te that is perseverance. 
It's likely a slow process, but you know what? There is an end in sight. Most of us just want our tests and trials to be over with yesterday, never to bother us again. But we must see them as God's ordained plan for our lives, that they are our friends sent to us by God to grow us so that we are more useful to him. Trials and their conflict have a joyful result in verses 4 through 12, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What we learn from this verse is that we must be in submission to him if he's going to accomplish his work in us through the trial. The goal that God has for our lives is maturity. I mean, just like if you raise children, you don't want your five-year-old to be grow up and still be a five-year-old emotionally or functionally when you're trying to raise them to be a mature, functioning adult. And so it is in the realm in the spiritual realm, with what God is trying to grow up us up to be. <clears throat> the goal God has for us is maturity, so we must allow the testing that he allows in our lives to do its work. Regardless of your circumstances, we are not trying <clears throat> to cut short the test that God has ordained for us because they are there to grow us to be more like him. As one author put it, the only way out of a trial is through it. The Lord is always with his children through the trial, but he cannot complete that work if we refuse to submit to him in our hearts. If the whole time we're fighting him, you're messing up my life, I can't stand this, make it go away. We must choose to rejoice in our trials because we know, it's not a guess, we know for a fact that we have a loving father who uses tests not to harm us, but to strengthen us, to equip us, to mature us. Endurance is to bring us not to a place of sinless perfection that will never happen in life on earth and this body, but rather to fully develop and grow us to spiritual maturity. The point of trials and tests is so that we will lack nothing. Rather, we will be mature and complete as we grow in our walk with the Lord. I love a, a message I read from Johnny Erickson Tata. And she made this statement, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Think about that. He doesn't take delight in our physical pain and emotional turmoil. He hates the impact and the difficulties. Look at the cross. Look what Jesus endured. But the love, the other side of that is that he accomplished what he loved. Peter reminds us that after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So our trials and tests, you know what? We need to remember they are not forever. They are for a season of life in our life on planet Earth. They have a purpose to accomplish in our lives and in the lives of those around us and in the lives of people who will come into our life in the future. Sometimes we miserably fail the test God brings into our lives by responding wrong, by resisting him, by resenting him, by accusing him. Sometimes we are completely baffled on what to do. So James tells us what to do when that is the case. Well, first of all, if you're resentful and resisting, you know you need to repent <laughs> and ask us forgiveness for lack of trust. But if we really need wisdom in a trial, which so often that is the case, we don't know what to do next. 
That's why verse 5 reads, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. We need wisdom in the midst of our trials. We need the ability uh, to look at our test from God's perspective and to know what to do in response. We need his help, his understanding to be able to get through trials. And this ought to bring us to our knees in prayer. We ought to have a much improved prayer life as a result of trials. Hopefully, the reason you're here studying the word of God, and I commend you for being here, is that you'll have a better knowledge of his word and his promises so that you have his wisdom I remind you the verse we all know so well, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So when we seek the Lord in prayer and ask for wisdom, he is so kind, he doesn't throw us a breadcrumb and say, try to figure it out. We uh, know he gives generously and without reproach. We are commanded here to ask God in prayer for wisdom in our trials. Why is it we go do 50 things and talk to other people and we didn't even go to him? He will help. He will give generously to us the wisdom that we need. When we ask for his wisdom to help us, he will not revile us or reprimand us. He doesn't tell us how awful we are, how unworthy we are. It's you again with the same nonsense going on in your life. (laughs) No, his divine wisdom will be given to us generously. Such a kind and loving father makes provision for us in the midst of impossible situations where we really have come to the end of ourselves. And actually, that's a really good place to be. Next, James clarifies to us how we are to ask our generous, loving Father for wisdom. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So our prayers are to be made and sought the Lord, seek the Lord with a trust in his character and a trust that he will keep his promises. I remind you, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must completely throw ourselves on the Lord and trust him and his purposes in our trials. James didn't tell us to ask for strength. If any of you lacks wisdom, uh, ask for strength or ask for deliverance. He said, ask for wisdom. We need his wisdom so that we don't completely waste the trial that God has given to Maturus. I can only tell you, you, you refuse to bend, you refuse to submit, you refuse to surrender your will. He will continue to bring trials to get your attention and mature you. His goal is to make you like himself, and that will take whatever measure it takes. But when we're fighting him, how dumb is that? <laughs> I mean, it's just really stupid. He is a loving father who delights to give us his grace to endure. And when we doubt the Lord, we're like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, being double-minded. The reason we're double-minded is because we want our will and God's will at the same time. And that just really doesn't work. A person with faith says they will trust the Lord, but doubt comes when we just don't believe. How often are we shocked when he actually answers? How many times did Jesus say to his followers, oh, you of little faith? I don't want to be characterized by that. I hope you don't either. A double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. So will you submit 
relinquish your will to his? Will you seek his love, this loving God who delights to give his wisdom to his children? Or are you just going to go on your way in your own wisdom? Verses 9 through 11, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. But the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, but the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now in these verses, James addresses the need for a humble spirit. Whether rich or poor in this life, all are going to face trials as their faith is tested. In the Roman world, they look down on those financially poor believers in Jesus, but God views them as people with great value and worth. These believers had a rich heritage because they are children of God with the anticipation of an eternal home, joint heirs with Christ. They may go through persecution and trials and poverty, but they have a high calling and a high position in the family of God. As believers, uh, when our faith is tested, we have the opportunity to demonstrate to the world that we lack nothing, even if we're poor. A believer in Jesus has their security in being in a right relationship with him, knowing their sins are forgiven. And it doesn't come from having wealth. Humility in this life awaits incredible rewards in heaven. So we must not trust in money, but rather in the eternal riches that God has waiting for us. Often money brings that false sense of security. Here today and gone tomorrow, as Proverbs says, money has a way of like taking wings and flying away. Just like the grass that withers. As one author put it so well, when you lose a daughter or a son or a wife or a husband or another loved one, wealth is not a comfort. When you lose your health, when you're betrayed by a friend, or you're wrongfully maligned, money cannot buy you peace of mind. Money doesn't decrease the pain. Trials are the great equalizer, bringing all of God's children to dependence on him. Wealth does not bring God closer, nor does poverty keep him further away. End of quote. Now he moves on to the reward for persevering in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. A believer is blessed having a satisfying inner joy from the Lord as they endure trials. And just like athletes who persevere in their training, even though it's painful and difficult, they endure because they know they're going to compete. And believers persevere in our spiritual training and during trials because we know it brings completeness. The trials that you may be facing today uh, are your training that's equipping you for tomorrow. Our trials prove our faith, our trials grow our faith, and they build endurance. Remember, ladies, there is a finish line. Just like in a marathon, there is a finish line. And so it is, there is a finish line from this life. The trials of this life are only in this life. Aren't we glad for that? <laughs> Someday, all tests will be over and we'll be perfectly like Christ in character and be in his presence. What awaits us is the crown of life. There is the promise of this crown of glory, the reward of the gift of salvation. And just like athletes who won a crown, back in the day of the Romans, so the believer will have a victory crown when they're finally in his presence. 
We have been promised wisdom from the Lord as we suffer through the trials of this life. Adversities are not random bad luck. Uh, They're not some kind of cruel joke that's messing up our lives. We have been taught in this passage here that trials have great purpose to prove and mature our faith so we have a greater capacity to serve and honor our great God. So ladies, we are in training. We're on a spiritual marathon of training, training spiritual muscles so that we have endurance. So don't give up and don't lose heart. Submit and to him and his, what he's brought into your life. He will sustain you. He will grow you into his likeness if you will submit in your own heart. Now he transitions into uh, handling temptation. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone with evil. Since man fell in the Garden of Eden, we all know the story. As soon as it happened, and God said, hey, you know, what's going on? And Well, the woman, and she said, the serpent. So we've all, this is what we do. It's not my fault. It's the home I was raised in. It's the spouse I'm living with. It's the difficult children. It's the difficult finances in my life. These are the reasons I am like I am. Well, it becomes an excuse or a rationalization for sinful responses. And James is making it very clear that no one should ever say God is even indirectly responsible for temptation to do evil. Why? Because evil is completely foreign to God. Evil and God exist in different realms that cannot meet. He is aware of evil, but he is not touched by it. He is holy, holy, holy. But each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. No person ever born is immune from temptation. I remember this old saying, you can't stop a bird from flying around your head, but you can stop him from building a nest in your hair. So temptation can be flying around you, but that doesn't mean you have to give in and live with it. It's a continual, inescapable truth to face temptation. This verse uses Greek words that have the idea of being baited by a trap in order to lure an animal or lure a fish using bait to get them to leave their place of safety because they're tempted by what they see. The bait uses in a trap and hooks looks so good and appeals to their senses. The desire to have the bait becomes so powerful for a person they forget all caution and then it's too late. And so it is with us. And Satan knows very well when, where, and how to drop bait uh, in front of us so that He wants to lure us away from obedience to God in our lives. Our inner desire is attracted to things that we know we shouldn't do or continue doing. Again, this is the fishing term where the bait looks wonderful, hard to resist. As one theologian put it, at this moment, God is unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, rather forgetfulness of God. The lust that aroused envelops the mind and will uh, and the will of man in the deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us at that moment. End of quote. So of course our sin looks attractive. Of course it looks pleasurable because it is for a season. The attraction for sin is because of our own lusts. It is our own wicked hearts. Often people blame Satan or the difficult people in their lives. As I mentioned before, their past history, their baggage, their spouse, their kid, their parent, their whatever. 
But the true reality is, it is our own lust in our hearts um, that the bait is set before. And the fault lies totally with us and our response. We all have our own struggles with particular sins and longings that we are responsible to put them to death. I love a quote from Stepping Heavenward, a favorite, favorite book of mine by Elizabeth Prentice from hundreds of years ago. It's full of gold truth. And she, in the story, in the book, is counseling, an older woman is counseling a younger woman who comes to her with this very difficult home situation. And the older woman says, you forget perhaps the indirect good one may gain by living with uncongenial, tempting persons. First, such people do good by the very self-denial and self-control their mere presence demands. Then, their making our homes less homelike and perfect than it would be in their absence may help to render our real home in heaven way more attractive. We only know ourselves and what we really are when the force of circumstances bring us out into the open. Later in the chapter, self-love cannot die without a fearful struggle. So the writer James goes on to say then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So sin occurs when we give in to the temptation. Now he switches from the picture of hunting and fishing to illustrate by using childbirth. Lust is pictured as the mother conceiving and bearing a child. The child is sin, and the final destiny is death. I remind you, the wages of sin is death. It is easier to spot the danger um, in areas that you may be weak in if you fill in the blank to the answer to my a couple questions. So a good place to be aware of where you're struggling is if you say in your heart, I have to have, you fill it in, or I can't do without, you fill that one in, or I would do anything if only I could. So whatever those answers are in your mind, those are your places of greatest battle and struggle and temptation. So learn to be aware of internal sinful attitudes so you can stop them before they're conceived. Desires can be so strong, they easily set us up to be deceived by our own emotions, how we rationalize, how we justify what we want, when we want it, and how we want it to be, and anybody getting in our way. That's when plans start to be made to satisfy our desires, which leads to disobedience, which leads to sin. The battle is always in our mind. That's where we must fight this battle and stop the progression. James warns us to stop blaming other people or circumstances or trials or even Satan for our sin. He is a formidable enemy, but he is defeated. We must take heed to our own sinful hearts and keep short accounts with God continually repenting every time you have that thought every time you have a curse word in your mind for the driver who cut you off I mean don't just go on your way and think that that's just okay we need to keep short accounts with God repenting continually and the truth about God is every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is never responsible for our being tempted to sin. Rather, he's the one responsible for every good thing in our life. We may be tempted to think that God is holding out on us and doesn't really care about us in a loving way because of what he's permitted to come our way, but it is the goodness of God that meets our needs. He is loving in what he gives us and how he gives it to us. 
What he gives comes down continually, not occasionally. His gifts are constant, even when we have to take it by faith. What's more, it is impossible for God to change. He is immutable. Therefore, we can trust him and his great love for us, even when difficulties seem to overwhelm our lives. God's character, his love, his wisdom never changes. His goodness never changes. So being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, experiencing his forgiveness and unconditional love, that ought to be the reason we hate evil. We put to death those temptation and those wrong thoughts and behaviors that try to bait us. In verse 18, we read that it is the act of God that washes away sin and gives us forgiveness and puts a new life within us. And my prayer is for each one here, I don't know all of you, that you come to that place where you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and trust that his death on the cross is sufficient. That is the only way to be forgiven. Turn from your sin and put your confidence and trust in what Jesus did in pain for your debt of sin. And he gives you a new life and a new nature and a new heart. And don't deceive yourself. Sadly, there are many people who have deceived themselves into thinking they are in a right relationship with God and they are not. Or believers think they are spiritual and they are not. We must receive the word. As James transitions from the power of God to transform lives and make new creations, we must continually be, continually be in submission to his word. We're to be quick to hear. That's why we have two ears. Slow to speak. One mouth. And uh, be good listeners and not to be angry. So ladies, we have an endless opportunity to be quick to hear. We live in a, a time in history where at the touch of a button, we can hear so many wonderful truths being taught to us at the convenient time of day for us. We're to seize every opportunity to hear the word of God and read it and seek its truth. You cannot be a good listener if you're always talking. And that is why we are to be slow to speak. And that's why we're to be slow to speak. And we only have one mouth, as I said, in two ears. So if we receive the word and submit to it, <clears throat> that will help us to be slow to anger. The Lord knows who we are deep down inside. He knows all about the hidden bitterness and resentment that you carry that nobody else knows about. But he cares about it. He wants to change you. He's doing whatever he can to get your attention to deal with that sin. <clears throat> Sometimes individuals hear truth from scripture and resent their ungodly attitudes being exposed. Personal anger, resentment, being hurt, all of these things bring harm to the name of Christ and the cause of Christ. Such anger never accomplishes anything that is right in the eyes of God. We are to put away anger, filthiness, wickedness, and by contrast, our life is to be characterized by humility. The only way we'll be teachable and have the word implanted in our soul is if we're humble. And you realize the reason you're angry and the reason you're impatient and tolerant, I speak to myself, is because we're proud. And how dare anybody mess up what I'm doing or step into my face and this is not how I want it to go. We are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So you can listen to all the wonderful sermons in the world every day of your life, but it takes applying what you hear. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. You're just the same immature, ungodly person filled with yourself. Most of us take time to look into a mirror before we leave our home. <clears throat> and God's word acts like a mirror. When we look into it, it reveals stuff about what we really are like. 
How many people read their chapter in the Bible for the day and go away and think they've done their duty, had their quiet time? How many of us just forget what we just heard, what we just read, or just don't ever apply it to our life? The Bible should cause us to examine our hearts that reveals our sin. It helps us to uh, cleanse us of of our sins as we dwell on its truth. So true faith is evidenced by our speech. It is our tongue that reveals what's really inside. So listen to yourself. Listen to your tone. Listen to the people who, uh, for the loved ones in your family, who hear you speak to them. What does it sound like? That's an indication of what's in your heart. And as we see ourselves in the mirror of God's word, it ought to cause us to see the need, needs of others and try to meet the needs. And thus the reason orphans and widows are to be looked after those who are destitute and lonely. They have a special place in the heart of God. True faith is seen by the love and care given to those who are in need and in distress. So the final way to apply the word of God is to keep oneself unstained from the word world. We live in a world system consumed with self-centered living, and we let that impact us and don't even realize it. We have to fight the culture by having compassion for others, living godly lives, and taking a stand for truth. True religion isn't about liturgy, fancy buildings, beautiful music. Rather, it's the practical service to others with personal purity in your own life. True religion is seen in quiet acts of love, caring for the helpless, the friendless, the orphan, and the widow. Let's pray. Father, so much truth in this chapter. Don't have time to really give it all that it deserves. But I thank you for James writing this to us, writing to people who are suffering in his day, and that's always been the case. As long as we live on earth, we're going to suffer. I thank you that with you as the master of our life, that you have purpose. You allow things because you love us, because you're growing us. It's not random. It's not purposeless. Lord, help us to embrace the trials and tests you bring into our life, saying to you, what do you want me to learn? I need you. I pray that we would be women who know the truth and live our life based on the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.